The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of Lead Lag Report. So I'm going to have uh, Jim Bianca joining us as well as Axel Merck, who's a friend here as a guest speaker, and special guest Jim Grant of Interest Rate Observer. All right, so Jim, I'll start off the uh, conversation. I always like to have the guests talk about themselves a little bit for those who are not familiar with who they are. You've been in business for a while. A lot of people know who you are, but for those that don't, just lay out your background real quick for, uh, for the new audience members here. Well, I, I type for a living. I'm a journalist, and I got into the business of the Baltimore Sun in uh, 1872. Oh, wait, no, no, 1972. So I'm knocking on the door of one half century, and I started grants in 1983, having served a stint at Barron's Financial Weekly. So I was born in 1946, the, the very first year of the great bond bear market of 1946 to 81. And here it is, year 40 of the great bond bull market. So I didn't see every single month of the great bond beer market, but my mother told me about the first three months in 1946. She said it was fabulous. So what I lack in in quantitative abilities, I think I make up for in firsthand experience. So that's what I bring to the table. Okay. So maybe about a year and 10 months ago, I had put out a number of research pieces and was picked up by Marco Watch, arguing that first bonds would crash and then stocks. Now, I was early in making that No case. sin, Michael. But I, think it's, <laughs> but I think it's fair to say that we are in a crash in the bond market. I'm curious your thoughts on the most recent movement in yields in the sense that we're now, I think, getting to a point where there's a potential for a, a deflationary shock with how fast yields could be rising. So talk through some of your thesis on how the bond market's playing here. Well, you know, there, there are, there are, there's two schools of thought, at least, concerning this movement of bonds. One is that this is the, the natural reaction of people who invest in the currencies that central banks actually set out to depreciate. This move, they say, is the perfectly rational and overdue response uh, to the theft of purchasing power through the willful uh, application of uh, policies that bring us inflation. And, you know, there's a, there is a, a school of thought that says that the funds rate ought not to be at one quarter to one half of 1% in the face of an 8% raging rise in CPI. Seems sensible. So people say uh, the bond bull market has run for 40 years, 40 years plus. It's high time for its successor. These markets in bonds do tend to cycle over the course of generations. So that's one approach. Another approach is that so levered are we and so fragile is the underlying financial condition, not only America, but of the West, that we are much less resilient and much more prone to accidents in the face of uh, a rising funding cost. So uh, say this school says this school thought that the funds rate, they may talk about raising it by three percentage points. They may talk the Fed may talk it. They may talk about peeling off a trillion dollars a year from their oversized jumbo portfolio, but we'll see how that actually plays out. I have in front of me, Michael, a, a fine, concise tweet of Thursday, Vintage, and this concerns uh, how much the Fed can actually do. Quote, this comes from uh, North Band Trader. Well done, North Band Trader. Here it is. Volcker couldn't achieve a soft landing when he raised aggressively during high inflation with markets valued at 40% of GDP and U.S. debt at 
of GDP. But we are confident we can achieve a soft landing, raising aggressively with markets valued at 190% of GDP and debt at 124% of GDP. In other words, it's very different this time. So that is the, that's the look of the, of the playing field. And you know, there's something else, Michael. People are saying, you know, uh, you can't just look at the funds rate. You have to look at uh, what some are calling the shadow funds rate. It's a very elaborate uh, quantitative work that has gone into to melding balance sheet movements of the Fed with the funds rate we see on the screen. And uh, advocates of this shadow funds rate contend the Fed, just through the exercise of its vocal cords, has already tightened to the extent of, I don't know, 200, 300 basis points, depending on how you do the calculations. But some advocates of the shadow funds rate contend that one Hundred basis points is as far as the Fed will get before things, as Jim Bianco is wont to say, start to break. And that is a very interesting and non-consensus point of view. So you have to respect that as well. So yeah, so that's and, and, yeah, no, and, and I'm glad you mentioned Jim because he he joined. I want Jim to speak, but but I will say real quick, he mentioned sort of this idea of a soft landing. To me, sounds also not plausible, right? Because if you I'm a big fan of Nassim Taleb and, and Black Swan thinking anti-fragility. And, you know, the more leverage you have in the system, as we all know, right, the more uh, fragile the system is. You know, you, you only need a few butterflies flapping their wings okay. when you have so much leverage in the system to create a, you know, Michael, a monetary hurry. There's, there's something else to consider just to, to appreciate just how far off, of course, by some measures we have flown with this decade-long exercise in QE and uh, Zerp and, and jawboning, you know, we're going to stay late to stay, stay easy for longer, et cetera, et cetera. And John Taylor is an economist, very well regarded one at Stanford. He was an assistant uh, secretary of the Treasury for uh, finance. And uh, his name, John Taylor's name, is the second most frequently spoken name at FOMC meetings. And why is that? Because of the, because of the eponymous Taylor rule. The Taylor rule is a simple formula having to do with uh, slack in the economy, measured rate of inflation, that, that leads the Fed to a rule of thought about where the funds rate should be. So, you know, people are talking about the funds rate going perhaps to, to 2% or 25 or 3% by the time the cycle is done. For context and perspective, the Taylor rule currently prescribes a funds rate in excess of 9%. So it would take, I forgot, it would take like 37 quarter point turns in the, in the funds rate, 37 tightenings to get to the Taylor rule. So the Taylor rule certainly is, 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 not, is not wholly writ. Our markets are not science projects. They're not susceptible to the laws of physics. There are no laws, actually. So one takes all these rules, the grain of salt. But my goodness, isn't it interesting just to form a picture of where we stand today that a Taylor rule funds rate is really, really out of not only consideration, but also out of the imagination of the market. It, it's, we live in, uh, shall we say, interesting times. Yeah, and I want to bring Jim Bianco and Axel Merkin, but I will say I, I, I've always been a believer that monetary policy should not be subjective, that it's probably better to be rules-based because even though there's no, 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 nothing is perfect, everything's infallible, but at least you don't get necessarily into this kind of runaway situation that I think we're in now. Jim, I want you to chime in a bit, uh, Jim Bianco, because... You've been all over this too. I know you're friends with Jim Grant. And I, I, I know you missed the earlier part of the conversation, but I started the conversation by saying that back in, I think it was May of 2020, I made the argument when I was among the very bullish people post-COVID, post the COVID crash, that bonds would crash first and then stocks. And I was very early arguably saying that, but it seems like we're in a bond market crash now. Stocks for now don't care, but they will at some point. Uh, something will break. So Jim, I want you to kind of riff on the speed and, and of, of yields here, the shock and what uh, everything Jim Grant has been saying here. Yeah. Hi, Jim. And hi, Jim. Good to talk Hello. to you. Yeah. One thing about what's happening with yields, you said yields. I want to turn that into total return. And I want to go into those ugly n names of duration and convexity. And I'll say it very simply. When yields fall, the duration of a bond extends. The duration, let's use the modified duration. How much does the price move for a 100 basis point move in yield? So at very low yields, when you start moving up, you get enormous price moves. So what you've got today, take the Bloomberg Aggregate Index. It's down 7.4% year to date through yesterday. 
only a brief spell in 1980 was worse, and that index was created in 1973. So you're looking at, from a bond investor standpoint, one of the worst periods we've seen, well, certainly the worst period in 42 years to be a bond investor. And even though that was slightly worse, there are other metrics that say this might be the worst period ever. So I hear people say, well, this is nothing like the early 80s because they look at the absolute level of yields and say, yes, a, uh, a 10-year yield at 2.65% is not 14%. I get that. But from a bond investor standpoint, the pain is every bit is real what's happening in the bond market right now. The stock market isn't even down 7%, at least year to date. But the bond aggregate indexes, and to give one other statistic to put that in perspective, the worst year ever in this measure, the, the aggregate index for bonds, was 1994 when it was down 2.9% for the entire year. We're already down 74 and it's only early April right now. So the first thing I'd, I'd like to say is the bond pain is very real. And Jim, I want to turn to you with that as a preamble and ask you a question. It seems like what I just said is bond investors get it, that the Federal Reserve is going to be very aggressive in raising rates. And, and that's why we're seeing this sell off in bonds. But stock investors, whenever I bring this up to them, I get one of two answers. The answer one is that this is not Volcker. They will eventually cave to weakening growth and allow inflation to stay elevated and, you know, in the vernacular, turn on the printing machine and keep markets up. Do you where are you on this? Do you think that if inflation stays elevated, that he can't that Powell can channel his inner Volcker here? Or do you think he will cave? towards uh, trying to protect asset levels. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayet here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. I think he has every intention of being uh, strong and, and of being deaf to the cries of uh, speculative America. I think that's what he means to do. But I think it's interesting to, to review the, the tenacity or lack thereof in various Fed chairmen that have preceded Mr. Powell. And somebody who was kind of a name, of the, a name from the past that will conjure up uh, strength and, and, and uh, deafness to the cries of Mark is William McChesney Martin, who was a Fed chairman from 1951 through 19, early 1970. And Martin gave the strongest and, and most inspiring speeches against inflation. He was a rhetorical enemy of inflation that we have never seen the likes of. He gave, he gave a talk about the perils of inflation in 1955 when the CPI was actually down. In the, so it's, it, I think it's, it's helpful to recall that, that William McChesney Martin, in the final Fed FOMC meeting in 1967, said, quote, the horse of inflation is out of the barn, and there's nothing we can do except make sure it doesn't run away too fast. So... This, 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 this great avatar of price stability caved in the face of an inflation rate of three, I forgot what it was exactly, say 3%, no, no higher than four. And of course, by the time he retired, upwards of five and six and heading towards finally in 1980, was heading to like 10. But uh, so that's Martin. So I, I, I think that I think it palaces every intention. And, and Leo Brainer, the, the former great Duff, has every intention of staying the course. But we'll see. I mean, it's one thing. It's, it's like, you know, let me add up. They say, but you know what, Jim? To, to your point about duration and about the level of rates and about the, the uh, loss of the bond, you know, and if you re, you you will not recall this, Jim, but I was trying to make a bullish case for bonds and barons in 1980 and 1979, 80, and uh, at the time you could do that by saying, "Dear reader, you could lose 10 percent of this coupon." And next year you could say you could lose 12 percent of this coupon. And the year after that you could say. 
you can lose 15% of this coupon and still break even. Uh, so 15% so of the price and still break even because the coupon was 10, 12, or 15%. And what is, is different, obviously different, but it bears mentioning, is that without coupons, you know, bonds are like stocks, right? They, they go down. Stocks without dividends, they go down. They go down a lot, and there's not much cushion. So we're looking at a bond market that still boasts, is that the word, boast? Two point something trillion of securities worldwide are still priced to yield less than nothing in nominal terms. So that's the, that's the legacy of this fabulous four decade long run. But people are just simply out of the habit of taking the bond market seriously. I think what the bond market does is go up in price down yield. That's what it, you have to have one and a half Wall Street careers before you've seen anything else. Yeah, just one other real quick question, and I'll let Axel throw in a couple. Jim, do you have any comments about Bill Dudley's op-ed earlier this week that the policy of the Federal Reserve? is to now lower the stock market? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think my reaction is probably much the same as yours, Jim. I mean, my first thought was, aha, aha, aha. They are now admitting that they target asset prices. Well, you know, actually, they, they admitted it on the op page of the Washington Post. What was the year? 2011, Jim, when Ben Bernanke wrote? Yeah, 2010. 2010, yeah. 2010 the Bernanke. Yeah. Yeah, Bernanke. So this, this yeah. was, uh, they, they dressed it up in the fancy language of the Portfolio Balance Channel. And that used to be called trickle-down. But the idea was that the Fed, through the artful manipulation of its little tiny funds rate, would raise up asset prices. The possessors of those assets would uh, spend their capital gains, and those spending would uh, help the rest of us uh, get through the dark winter of the post-2007 and nine uh, Great Recession. That was theory. And you know, I, I, Jim, did you see that somebody, I've forgotten one with other sites, ridicule the signatories Nobel Prize signatories like Joe Stiglitz and uh, Mr. Becker ridiculed them for signing an open about a year ago about how inflation was, in fact, going to be transitory and how this uh, build back better spending was not inflationary because it was social capital. And, all. and I remember <clears throat> actually signing such a letter around 2011 or 12. It was they, they were doing QE and uh, one of my friends got a bunch of people. Guys, let's let's sign a letter to the, to the Fed, the New York Times, saying uh, this is going to be inflationary. So yeah, sure, I'll sign that because you know I. I <laughs> <laughs> by the way, the rule is never sign an open letter. But the open letter said inflation. It didn't say inflation, which the consequences of which are variable and unpredictable, and they can take they can manifest themselves in the stock market, in the bond market, or at the cash register of Walmart. But mm-hmm. yeah, so whatever you're. Co- Let me. Uh, I, I am before bringing Axel work real quick. I, I had Professor Blanche Flower on a couple of days ago, and you know, he's done a lot of work in the UK side of things. And we had this debate about the effectiveness around the Fed using interest rates to break inflation, when arguably interest rates are more about demand pull inflation than necessarily cost push, right? Because of supply chain disruptions. Before Axel comes in, I am curious your thoughts, Jim, on how effective the blunt tool of interest rates can be when you've got more than demand pull, obviously, driving CPI now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this inflation is, a, is, a, is something comprehensive and not easily definable or um, pigeonholeable as demand pull. Or uh, I mean, you ha- you've had the confluence of circumstances that are rare indeed, but it's, uh, I'm not going to say perfect storm. It is a cliche that bears no airing on any respectable podcast, but consider the confluence of, of a pandemic or unprecedented monetary easing and certainly singular, if not uh, unprecedented, peacetime, in America peacetime, domestic fiscal stimulus. And as Bob, as Bob Gibson, the great uh, Cardinals pitcher, said to uh, Ducky Schofield, a 230 lifetime hitter, said after Ducky struck out and walked back to the bench cursing and muttering and breaking water coolers. What did you expect, Ducky? What did you expect? And I would say with respect to the confluence of busted supply chains and uh, now uh, sanctions and unprecedented monetary this and unprecedented fiscal that, what did you expect? It's not just demand pull. It is monetary overkill. It is fiscal redundancy. It is the willful and successful policy on the part of our monetary and fiscal masters to debase the currency and in their conceit to believe that they know when to stop. And sometimes events are just in control. And I think one of the hallmarks of the present age in finance is that we have come to assume, because the Fed has told us so, 
that the Fed is in charge of events. And sometimes, Jim, remember the, the G. William Miller years? You probably read about it in elementary school. But during the G. William Miller years, events were certainly in charge, as they were indeed during the, uh, the Burns years in the 70s. So um, it might just be the Fed is going to be slightly irrelevant. Kind of, you know, I think we all agree, and I've heard you talk about this before, Jim, that uh, nobody can predict the future, right? I mean, it's, it's a closed well, I'm book. Talking, I think, I'm just talking for myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. But, but I'm saying that from the standpoint of, you know, the, the, the only counter that the idea that nobody can predict the future is that the best way to predict the future is to create it, which arguably you can you can say the Fed has tried to do for decades, but it's not clear that they're able to do it as effectively as they used to. So Axel, Mark, I want Axel to come in here. Hey, hey, hey Jim. Hey, great Axel. To, great to have you nice on, to talk on, to you. on Twitter spaces. Oh, yeah. I want to tie into this thing about whether the Fed is irrelevant. You talked earlier about rules-based Fed policy would, of course, dictate something very different. I want to Go into a, an angle of that, or at least I think it's an angle. I want you to talk about cats and uh, specifically about Powell's ability to hurt the cats on the FOMC and uh, more importantly, I guess, whether it matters. And, and the context here is, of course, that after the most recent FOMC decision, Powell gave what was um, portrayed as a hawkish talk. Whether it was indeed or not is, is, I think, a little bit open to interpretation. But I think everybody agrees that the talk that has since come out from the other FOMC members are substantially is substantially more hawkish. And then, of course, the minutes that came out a few days ago paint, a, I think, a very different picture than what Powell talked about in the press conference. And and so I guess to me, this, this suggests, and I'd like to have your take on that, that maybe Powell misread the the mood on the FOMC and then he has been forced to to change his tone. And and so the question is, I, I guess twofold. The one is, is is do you see any signs that Powell is losing the grip on the FOMC, his his control of them? And if so, does it matter? And then secondly, what is it that's driving this? Is it is it just the market that's chasing them and the Fed is adjusting? Or are they coming out of the woods saying, hey, we wanted this all along, but we kept quiet and now there's just no chance to stay quiet anymore? I, th- I think the, the Fed has been shamed and you know it's it's no fun being on the wrong side of the market. I speak from experience in that respect. And it's certainly no fun being revealed as somewhat uh, less than the possessors, less than the imagined magicians that the Fed has portrayed itself as. It's not a very good sentence, but we try it again. I think the Fed has helped us to imagine a group of wise men and women who can see into the future and approve and prove it before it can come to pass, and they have been revealed, again, uh, let us use it again, as, as quite ordinary mortal human beings trying to do the impossible. So they remind me a little bit of starlings on a power line. You know, one flies away, they all fly away. They, they, they tend to, to move in waves and groups. There's a phrase I heard the other day that's quite descriptive. This is called preference cascade. Preference cascade. And it strikes me as very descriptive and evocative of the way the Fed suddenly, how recently was it actually when they told us there would be no rise in the funds rate at all in 2022? Was that last year? And all of a sudden it said, everybody's, yeah, so let's, let's go get them. Let's, we, we, we're not going to settle until, uh, not, not going to sleep until we get this inflation rate down. In- so, so, so Jim, the question is, does it matter? And let me, let me just give you my thoughts on this, and then maybe you agree or disagree with that. Um, to me, the, the cheapest Fed policy is when a Fed official utters a few words and, and the market adjusts accordingly. It's more expensive to, to raise rates or to engage in QE and, and whatnot. And so when, when, Powell has a bigger challenge to set the tone. It makes for a less effective policy, which means they might need to do more than they would right. otherwise have to do. Any thoughts on this? Well, I think they are going, they, they intend, they have every intention of being aggressive and of lifting the funds rate and of destroying demand if necessary and uh, to letting the pieces fall where they may. That's their intention. And I think that Powell is hurrying to catch up with his colleagues. He wants to be more like the fellow from St. Louis. He wants to be as tough as Lael Brainerd. He, he does not want to be seen as a weak leader. I think that the, the drive for the need for institutional dignity is one of the driving forces of the Fed, perhaps even more than the, more potent than uh, anything their quantitative models are telling them. May I challenge you on that just for a second? Because if that was really the attitude, he would have done it last August or last December or had a 
mid-meeting hike in, in January. To me, that's just not, not credible. Now, obviously, he's now come out with a speech, whatever it takes and whatever, in his press conference. But but to me, that's more like, yeah, I was wrong and now I catch up. But that they well, want to be yeah. aggressive. I, I don't know. It's more posturing than anything to me. It's, it's not a posturing? I'm sorry, Axel. I didn't miss your point. Yeah. The, the, well, the question is, is it more I, I have no doubt that now they will be aggressive. But it seems to me they do it because they get whacked by the market. Yes. And, and so I then the question that. is that the moment, the moment that the market takes a step back, Will they also say, okay, we didn't mean it, or yes. how far will they yes. take it? They will step back when the markets do something that they that frightens them. I think that's the book. That's that's that is that's that's the record. And you know, Michael, you were talking about a system of rules rather than of discretion or of improvisation. I would say the PhD standard is not a, a system or anything else but an improv. But you know, long ago in the High Victorian days of the classical gold standard, there was discussion in uh, circles of the Bank of England as to whether to have a, a fixed rule on the monetary reserve and, and uh, the discount rate. And Walter Badgett, the editor of The Economist and the, the great muse of modern central banking with his book called Lombard Street, uh, Badgett said something to the effect of, uh, where are the rigid men to enforce the rigid rules? So it's one. It's you know. It's it's. I I think that in this day and age, there is uh, very little stomach for monetary pain. I mean, the gold standard was a, was about basing the monetary stance of a central bank, the monetary discipline of a country, on one variable. That is the exchange rate. I can't uh, picture that coming back anytime soon. We might be forced to reconsider it if things take, and especially. Probably perhaps even an inevitable turn, but we are stuck with the PhD standard, and the PhDs, I think, are hurting creatures. To your point about cats, when when an outsider gets within fifty yards of the Echoes Building, they form ranks and seek to repel unwanted boarders. This is a clerisy; it's a closed group of anointed technocrats, and I don't know. I I, I think that they will yield. Axel, to your point, they will yield to what the marketplace does rather than lead. I mean, let's not forget they were, they were implementing QE through March with the CPI printing upwards of 8%. They were still doing QE. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary record. I mean, some people are, of course, saying it's it's good that they're following the market. I, I mean, I've heard the other end of that spectrum. You don't um, amputate a leg by cutting off the toe, right? You got to get out in front of inflation. How, how do you see this play out on the inflationary front in, in the medium term? And I will add to that on that point, just real quick, on kind of the tail wagging the dog. Like there's been a lot of wealth destroyed this year just from the bond market alone. I mean, there are, there's a lot of money being taken out of the system just in terms of losses. Right? That's got to have an impact on inflation sooner than, than most people think, no? Well, the Fed is very powerful vocal cords. People, uh, you know, I, I often think how wonderful it would be to be long the stock of a company that has the durability and the resilience of a business model and of a brand, as does the Federal Reserve. I mean, think of the of the events uh, and the failures that ought to have discredited less less illustrious, less revered institution. I mean, the Fed, uh, with all its PhDs, uh, failed to see the events of 2007 to 2009. It, it had no clue that there was a problem in mortgages, no clue this problem housing, including father and credit overall. And uh, it uh, was taken aback by this thing we now call inflation. They had no idea it was going to persist. But actually, you asked about my view of inflation. I think that there is a risk that it could prove uh, very tenacious and very persistent. I'm not sure if the next print is going to be the peak for a while. It could be. But you know, if you, if, again, if you, the, the peacetime inflations in America are very rare occurrences. People didn't see the great inflation coming in part because there had been no precedent. The, the, the inflation of 1965 through 1984, call it, or 1980, that was the first example. And uh, the Vietnam War did, in fact, overlay. It, it, its timing did uh, coincide with the onset of inflation. The defense spending was actually lower at the end of the 60s than it had been at the, at the start of the 60s. So I, I don't think that the Vietnam War was as much of a war as it surely was, was not this singular or not an important causing causative force in the great inflation. So anyway, people people didn't see it coming because there had never been a like. There had never been something like it before. And so 
about the present day. I think that the people are out of practice at imagining that such a thing is possible. But with every day that passes, uh, the inflationary impulse becomes more deeply embedded in the institutions and in the workaday procedures of America, whether that has to do with wage setting or pricing, or I think it's becoming rather more familiar and therefore likely to be more persistent. So I think inflation could surprise us by its longevity and by its tenacity. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, because there's got to be a point where where bonds are screaming by. I mean, I would argue that long duration treasuries are getting close to that, unless you really do believe inflation is going to stay with us for a long, long time. But yeah, kind of riff on that a little bit, Jim. Well, you know, the the Fed is the is the steward of the world's reserve currency, right? But its rebit stops dead at the water's edge. If you listen to the Fed, uh, someone once every ten years, someone will ask, "Well, what about the Fed's obligation to say the emerging markets?" which do very badly when the Fed tightens? Or what about the, the Fed's culpability and uh, the fragility of the European Union, given that the rise in dollar interest rates is going to press the ECB to do something that might shatter that uh, continent's financial structure and, and very precarious sovereign debt, arithmetic of the sovereign debt? So what about that Fed? And they'll say, well, we have nothing to do with that. We are purely domestic in our focus, and we only target inflation and unemployment in this country. But be that as it may, surely the the Fed's actions have uh, profound effects on the world. And I'm thinking, for example, the interplay between the the Japanese bond market and the Japanese yen, yen dollar exchange rate. I mean, the the Fed is, with its vocal cords, not yet with its actions, has uh, helped the dollar exchange rate to climb that as, as facilitated the break of the yen. And uh, it might just be in the way that uh, billiard balls move around a table that the yen now uh, trading down as it has to uh, what uh, near 125 and, and uh, Chinese looking at this and not much liking the effect of the yen on the renminbi's place in the world currencies and the place of Chinese exporters dealing with Japanese competition now enhanced by the very cheap yen. It might just be that the renminbi devalues, which last time that happened, has shattered teacups throughout the world, not least in our own S&P 500. So the world is indeed one place. It always has been one place. But what is a little bit new and different about monetary arrangements over the past 50 or 60 years has been this thing we used to call monetary nationalism. There is no coordination among the central banks. There's no, Michael, there's no gold standard to, to knit the world together. So central banks operate independently and with a national focus. And that oftentimes has very, very destabilizing effects world finance. So is this a time to buy bonds? Well, there are, in Texas, there are two of the greatest bond investors of the 20th and 21st century. Lacey Hunt and my old friend Van Hoisington. And Van has promised me that he would call me first, second, or third. I think he should tell his wife first. Maybe uh, so I'll get the second call. But Van has promised to tell me when he is going to sell the long bonds that he bought about 40 years ago. Van wasn't quite there at the bottom. But he and his, his partner, Lacey Hunt, have been the advocates of the to-date very profitable view that such is you know, the fragility of the system, such is the uh, leverage in the system, and such is the, the, the lack of velocity and the turnover of dollar bills within the system, that all the talk about inflation, which is cyclical, and all the talk about rising rates, which is cyclical, will come to nothing new because of the aforementioned fragility and leverage. And they are not sellers, they are buyers. I disagree with them a little bit. I I have always disagreed with them. They have always to date been correct. But I think that there is a very realistic chance that um, this indeed this, this violent move off of the uh, lows in yields is the start of something very significant and very long-lasting. And as a friend of mine once remarked, quote, we'll know more in 40 years, 
close quote. Good thing that we'll all be around <laughs> to see that. Got, Let's get. Gotta, uh, gotta speak for myself. I fully intend to be. Here. <laughs> I would begin by saying, "Okay, Boomer." Peter Thiel is not quite a Boomer. I think he's a year shy of that honorific. But you know, I th- I think first of all, there is an element of ageism in uh, Peter Thiel's remark, and I think that I think that the federal government ought to know about that. And the relevant federal agency might want to interview Peter and perhaps imprison him for 15 or 20 years for violating that social norm. But <laughs> beyond that, I would say that, that, the, that the true zealots, the true apostles of uh, the cryptocurrencies forget that they are short technology, by which I mean the nature of technology is self-destruction. The nature of technology is creative destruction. The nature of technology is that, is that the DOS system, which was so fabulous in this day, I can still remember the joy I felt with using the multi-mate word processing program in 1983. Ah, it was. And I would have bet that that system would have stood me instead. So, but you recall, others came along that were even better. And I have no doubt that if digital currency remains a thing, that Bitcoin, I suspect, I say I have no doubt, one can't know. I believe that Bitcoin, which uh, I, uh, which we ought to quote, by the way, not in dollars, but in tethers, right? We're not dealing with dollars, we're dealing <laughs> yes. with tethers. I think that Bitcoin is likely to be regarded as a, as a relic, as the, as, the, as the DOS system for alternative money. It's not, it's not actually money. It is a, a tether-based speculative billiard ball. But So that's, that's my approach to Peter. I was, again, I'd say with respect to his um, dogmatism on this, uh, he, sounds like a, he sounds like an old guy chasing people off his lawn. I, I, involved, I advise Peter to simmer down a little bit. And, uh, and for a fellow who is 56 years old, he ought to just uh, ease up a little bit because he's not getting any younger. I want to go to Jim Yako on something that um, I heard Doomberg, which I had as a guest on a few weeks ago, said, which was interesting about inflation expectations. I want Jim Bianco and then Jim Grant to answer off this, this point. But the, is, is part of the reason why this is potentially so, so much of a, a strange environment related to social media. So the argument that Doomberg was making, if you go with the idea that inflation expectations are critical to everything, and social media just keeps on pushing out the narrative that we're in a very high inflationary environment, and people, kind of, people on, uh, keep on retweeting and liking anything around that narrative, that it actually creates this sort of self-fulfilling narrative. I am curious about, Jim, your thoughts on how social media may be countering the Fed, because the Fed's got a you know, loud voice, but social media can be louder and, and set those expectations in, way, in ways they don't want it to. Yeah, two things. First of all, I agree with you that social media is becoming a very, very loud voice. Look no further than the Ukraine-Russian war where social media seems to be intent on moving beyond canceling people that say politically incorrect things to canceling a country. And that seems to be uh, what they're trying to do right now. And yes, some aspects of social media are pushing this narrative that inflation is, is big and it's bold and you need to adjust your behavior. In Fed speak, it's becoming unanchored. But there's another big part of social media, FinTwit, financial Twitter, that keeps pushing the narrative that the Fed doesn't matter anymore and that uh, policy doesn't matter anymore and that stocks will just always go up and what you're supposed to do is buy the dip whenever there's a dip. So I don't see it quite being as uniform as uh, you might have suggested it being because I think there's a lot of facets to it. And lastly, if I, if I meander off a little bit, Jim Grant will remember this, Jeremy Rood, who is an economist at the Federal Reserve, wrote a paper last September basically lampooning the idea, basically saying that inflation expectations are not a thing, that it doesn't matter what people expect on inflation because, one, it's not measurable, two, it can change at an instance, and three, it doesn't give you any insight as to what is going to happen um, next with inflation. And I'm tending to kind of fall into that camp that, you know, people might have inflation expectations becoming embedded, but that can come real fast and that can go away real fast. And I'm not so sure if it really matters when it comes to policy, whether they think it's inflation 
What really matters is that we actually have inflation. Those are kind of some of my thoughts on that. Jim, how about you? I would, Jim, I would agree with that. I remember that paper by Jeremy, and as, as if I knew him, Jer- Jeremy Rudd, was it, who wrote that? Anyway, I, I, I read the paper, and I agree with it. I think that the, the preoccupation with inflation is a way of the Fed dodging responsibility for having pressed interest rates to zero in the face of, of rising prices and of its derogation of its duty to the, the currency of which it is the overseer. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this whole idea of a, ne- you know, and the word narrative has also come to have a somewhat uh, semi-mystical meaning as if uh, the agreed-upon storyline of the day can, can, can force events. I don't know. I, I think there are perhaps objective causes to some things and narratives and memes and, and, and social media can only take us so far. Expectations can only take us so far. Well, these are great questions and to which I have not the foggiest idea of a helpful answer, but if I may just lend some historical color to the to these scenarios that you sketched out. So the, the great bond bear market began without a press release announcing its onset, as is the case, it's like in April of 1946, and the long bond was like two and a quarter to 12 or something. And so, so you wonder, how does a secular bond bear market Begin. Well, we only have a few of them, but the few that we have suggest that the, that the tempo can be quite measured, in fact, so measured that you don't know what is actually happening. So 1946 was a starting pistol at, say, two and a quarter, we'll call it. Ten years later, 1956, beginning of the second year of the second to Eisenhower administration, the long bond equaled, uh, yielded three and a quarter, 100 basis points in 10 years. You could be forgiven for not knowing that the secular bond bear market was 10 years old. So what is different this time, of course, something's always different this time, and I want Jim's, uh, Jim Bianco is a, is a very close student of these things. What is, is, is striking to me, at least, Jim Bianco, is, is the explosive nature of this. I mean, these, if you look at it, the graph of the yield of the two-year note of the three-year note, my goodness, it's straight up and nothing like that the last time around. I'm not sure how this figures into the prospects for a long-term for the next secular bear market starting, but it's, if it is in fact this thing, and I happen to, to think it is, it is certainly getting off with a bang. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I've been on record that the, the bull market that started in 1981 in bonds ended on March 9th of 2020 when the 10-year yield intraday hit a low of 33 basis points. And I think what's happened with the two-year note, you know, this relentless rise in the two-year note, is that prior to six months ago, people thought that the two-year note was just an appendage of the Fed funds, right. that it was set It was set by the central bank and that there was really nothing to see there. And it is now becoming decoupled from that. And it is becoming more of an independent, you know, actual people making considered decisions are trading the two-year note now, which is something new that we haven't seen since at least 2008 with it. And that's why I think you're seeing it run higher and higher because they're of the opinion, at least short-term bond traders are, short-term debt traders, that the Federal Reserve is going to get very aggressive when it comes to fighting this inflation thing. And it's being expressed with this relentless rise in the two-year note. And that's, like I said, it's something we hadn't seen before because the the Fed funds market barely exists. It only exists because the Fed decides it still should exist. And the two-year note was kind of like that a year ago. But now, all of a sudden, it's become a real market again. You know, it's one of the interesting things, Jim Bianco, about all this is, is to me, is the persistent uh, take-up on the reverse repo facility. This is the uh, the gimmick that the Fed runs to to house unwanted dollars. You know, these banks are long a lot of very liquid, uh, short-dated deposits. And, and um, so this, they say, what do we do with these? Because the Fed has uh, hoovered up so many securities in the course of QE. So what happens every day? is that the Fed invites tenders for its reverse repo facility. You can tender dollars to send over to the Fed, and you earn all of 30 basis points per annum before tax. And in this time of supposed stringency and of tightening, this RRP, this reverse repo things, gathers in a trillion six, a trillion seven, a trillion eight, a trillion five, but it's that trillion and a half dollars plus plus every single night. Why? I think you answered the why. The why is is that they they to, to put it in the vernacular, they printed too much money. 
And that, you know, if you're a banker right now, it's it's you're knee deep with it on the floor and you're trying to figure out what to do with it. And the Fed was worried that you were going to start to push it into uh, money market uh, instruments like repo or treasury bills. And eventually you would wind up pushing those rates negative. They don't want negative rates. So they offered you a place in, to inventory those right. excess dollars in the reverse repo facility right now. And so it goes to an earlier point that you were saying, the Fed just stopped doing QE in March. We still have more than a trillion and a half dollars of excess reserves sitting in the reverse repo facility. The Fed is a long, long way towards being what anybody would be considered tight. It's got a ways to go and it's got work to go. And that gets back to my two-year note comment. I think that's what short-term debt traders are trying to say too, is that, yeah, just for the Fed to get to neutral is going to be a lot of work. And that's why you're seeing the two-year note yield rising as much as it has. If they knew what neutral was. And I I think that something that would give me a little more confidence in my all-too-recurrent notion that that we are finally embarked on a secular rise in bond yields would be if uh, the yield curve steepened and people began unloading long-dated treasuries because of a conviction that, that inflation was going to, in fact, persist. But as it is, the curve, the flattening of the curve suggests that people are still holding on to the notion that, no, this is another false start in the unhelpful proposition that the great bond bull market is over. So I'd I'd say that the the market is still very much, its mind is open on this topic. It's it's a critically important topic. Just in in five seconds, Jim, they they always know where the neutral rate was because they raise rates too much until something breaks and they go, okay, now we know where it was. They never know where it is as they start to raise rates. Correct. Great (laughs) distinction, James. (laughs) One might say that there is a run on central banks when the competition to central bank issued currency catches a bid. Now, this gets us into the the fundamental issue of whether the the great, uh, was it trillion, uh, $2 trillion in uh, market cap for the, the crypto world now, is that a monetary statement or is that a statement about the ease of speculation in the absence of interest rates? Because until fairly recently, we have had sensibly at the fund, low end of the yield curve, the short of the yield curve, we've had 0% rates. So the, the, the central banks, to my mind at least, are not yet run on. They are still, they occupy this lofty uh, place in the, in the uh, firmament of finance. And they, they are semi-sacred institutions. Uh, one mustn't politicize them, they say. One must let the we must let them be independent. But you know, Congress, as my friend Seth Lipsky of the New York Sun is want to say, has between ninety nine and one hundred and one percent of the responsibility for governing and overseeing the Federal Reserve System. It's a congressional creature, and uh, I blame Congress for finally Congress. It's it's Congress's problem that the Fed implemented QE in the face of an eight percent rising CPI. It's Congress's fault that the Fed has uh, stripped us of interest rates that, after all, are the traffic signals of a market economy. It's, it's Congress's fault that the Fed has experimented with this QE using us as laboratory rats. All of this falls at the feet of the Congress and its dereliction of the duty of oversight and governance. And let Congress hold hearings about, not just about whether the funds rate ought to be one half of 1% or one and three eighths or three eighths of one, but rather, what is the nature of a dollar? What is the nature of a dollar in a digital age? And let's, 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 let's stop taking the existence of the Fed in its present form and in its present guise and with its present prejudices as a given. Let us re-examine from the bottom up. Yeah, a- amen to that. Last question for me real quick, Jim. So I, I, I'm sharing it in the space at the top, but on June 25th in 2020, I put out a piece on Seeking Alpha with a little bit of a dramatic title, but I argued at the time that the only way out post-COVID was either hyperinflation or defaulting to the Fed. And my arguments at the time, which I think largely have proven out to be true, is that they're going to overreact with so much stimulus, you're going to cause the debt to GDP ratio to just skyrocket. And you're going to be at a point of no return where 
there's no way out of it in the absence of a pure full-on MMT. Put put your you know put your kind of long-term forecasting hat on, even though you know that nobody can predict the future. How does this actually res- resolve itself? Because you can't grow your way out of this. You can't necessarily hyperinflate out of it because you have protests. What is the only way out of this? I guess to get up in the morning and go to work. I will yield to others on the, in the art of stargazing. I think that what did change about the time you made this very dramatic forecast was the the institution of a precedent by the Fed that at times of crisis, as defined by the Fed, the Fed is allowed to do things that this charter would otherwise prohibit it from doing, such as monetizing speculative-grade corporate debt. And I think that the, uh, the Fed crossed many boundaries in 2020 and 2021. And to that extent, we have embarked on some pretty dangerous monetary possibilities. We have likewise embarked on, on MMT in fact, if not in name. And that goes back many administrations. The idea of the public debt is a problem lapsed many, many years ago. So I, I, I am, I think, a little less inclined, Michael, to be so worried about the possibilities of outright calamity. But I think that it's troubling indeed that we have lost seeming all inhibitions with respect to the fiscal and monetary excess. And, you know, it's, I think that the lack of such inhibitions is itself a fundamental cause of inflation, otherwise known as the systematic, willful debasement of currency. Yeah, and I, I, I followed up that, that statement in middle of 2020, or at the end of 2020, by saying that the U.S. does not need more stimulus than the U.S. needs discipline, which is hard to have in a, in a democracy where you don't get voted for austerity. So anyway, listen, for everybody that's joined the space, this was a real pleasure for the last hour, a little over an hour with all these great guests. You know, Jim Grant, obviously, a uh, phenomenal uh, steward of knowledge and understanding Fed policy. Everybody, again, make sure you check out Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Uh, special thanks to uh, Jim Bianco, Axel Merck, everybody that contributed. I'll do another space tomorrow. And Jim Grant, really, this was uh, really phenomenal. I'm, I'm much appreciative of, uh, of the time. Here. Boy, I'm privileged to be asked. Thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.